From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. I'm grateful tonight that Illinois continues a long tradition of peaceful and fair elections. And I am so thrilled to spend four more years as your governor. I just spoke to Governor Pritzker and congratulated on his win tonight. The challenges are many, but I'm going to do what I always have done. What Americans always have done. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to go back to work. Well, it was quite a year in Illinois, in government and politics, and of course the election dominated. Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker won a second term. He defeated Republican nominee Darren Bailey. But there was more that happened, and we'll talk about it all coming up on our Year in Review episode. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, along with Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And joining us today, we have Amanda Vinicky, reporter for WTTW's Chicago Tonight. And Amanda, it's always good to have you back with us. Glad to be with you. I mentioned the election, so let's just start there. Uh, it was quite an interesting year because at this point last year, I'm not even sure at this point we knew who all the Republican candidates were going to be uh, running for the nomination. Of course, Richard Irvin, the mayor of Aurora, jumped in with backing from Ken Griffin. That didn't work out too well. Darren Bailey winning the nomination, and that sort of set the tone for this election. Yeah, easily winning the election. And Ken Griffin, who these days? He's a Florida resident and has really seemingly abandoned Illinois, Chicago, and the Republican Party, particularly the sort of establishment slash moderate factions who look to him as their hope for funding and for in any sort of resurgence. Instead, once Richard Irvin lost the primary in pretty spectacular fashion, I would add, um, then he, Griffin was gone from all contests. And so we have the news is that in a sense, there, there's no news and that Democrats have maintained their hold on Illinois government. And oh, wait, by the way, added to it, at least in numbers in the Illinois House, as well as the state Supreme Court, another huge couple of elections that stood to really make for a big, huge turn. Republicans, of course, looking back to um, last election, they had gotten rid of Justice Kilbride, and this was their opportunity to gain a seat and said they lost some. So um, I think what you're seeing now is looking forward into 2023 and perhaps the, who knows how far into the future, frankly, a, a pretty decimated Illinois Republican Party. And there is still a lot of infighting, not really agreement in terms of what went wrong with the election amongst Republicans. Um, and so big changes in Republican leadership. Darren Bailey will come, the, 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 of course, gubernatorial nominee and currently a state senator, but he'll, he'll lose that title coming up in early January. So we'll be watching to see what he does, perhaps a run for Congress. He is still active on social media and is seen by a lot of more of the conservative wing of the GOP as their, as their guy, despite his loss to J.B. Pritzker. Yeah, and Charlie, I, I guess, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say, uh, you know, I, I, I 
tend to be uh, nonpartisan watching uh, these elections, but I think it's important to have a strong Republican Party and a strong Democratic Party. I think government works the best when that's going on. Right now, that may not be the case for Republicans. We've talked about this on the show previously, but it seems to be what's missing for Republicans is really strong leadership, too. They need somebody to rise up and be sort of the face of this party. Yeah, I would say that it's more that they have to decide whether or not they want to follow down this course of being hard right culture warriors in a state where that message does not resonate very well, or if they want to open up and allow other people in. I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago on the show with Rick Pearson, who went to the state central Republican state central committee meeting and and one of the speakers said, well, we need to have more flavors. And somebody in the crowd shouted out, no, one flavor, one flavor. And it's that kind of attitude that I think is going to spell trouble for the Republican Party. They have to figure out a way to reach out to suburban voters, for example, or to voters who are not into the culture wars. And, and Darren Bailey one with, I believe, 57% of the vote in a multi-candidate primary. And he appealed to those folks. And he goes to Chicago and calls it a hellhole, which probably didn't win him a lot of support among Chicagoans. And it's it, and they're doing a lot of what I would call navel-gazing after the way that they got totally shellacked here in Illinois. And some of it has to do with the message as people pointed out, some of it had to do with what in retrospect was an absolutely dumb position put forward by former President Donald Trump as part of his big lie campaign, how he really won the election and he was cheated, which is total malarkey. But he encouraged people, don't vote early, don't vote by mail, show up on election day. Because if you vote early, uh, who knows what's going to happen to your ballot? So as a result, Democrats had a huge head start. And by the time the election day came around, they were already way behind the, the eight ball in terms of having people to the polls. And Pat Brady, who's a former Republican chairman, said that this was an article that appeared in the Center for Illinois Politics. He said, you got another example of Trumpism killing the party. Early mail-in voting has been growing every year, every cycle. And to not engage when those are the existing rules, it was brutal. On top of that, you got the de facto head of the party running around telling everybody it's all fraudulent. That scares people away. At one point of rebuilding the party, Brady finishes up here, we've got to get some kind of early voting program done. Well, Amanda, another thing, Another aspect of the election, and this is this is a trend we've been seeing now for a while in Illinois and really elsewhere, money has always been important in politics. But when you look back to this election, you have an uber-wealthy governor on the Democratic side running, and he won. But all, the two top Republicans there, when you look at... Um, when you look at Richard Irvin and you look at Darren Bailey, both got windfalls into their campaign funds to help them run... Has this become what politics is these days? I mean, is there any going back from this point? You know, Sean, I think that is sort of, I, I don't know about underreported because it certainly is a footnote in nearly every story, but 
what does that mean for politics going forward? Um, Pritzker is the primary funder of the Democratic Party. Of course, they have a broader base. You have a lot of union support as well, particularly for Democrats. But um, he's not just funding his own campaign. He gave heartily and handily to, again, this Illinois Supreme Court candidates who were successful, to the Democratic Party of Illinois, to the legislative leaders. Where does the Democratic Party go going forward when Pritzker, should he move on? <laughs> um, and perhaps, again, there's talk about him really eyeing some sort of federal position, even looking to the White House. Wh where does the Democratic Party go and um, beyond its union base? And then Republicans, yes, they're, they were primarily looking to Ken Griffin, who, as I mentioned, is seemingly gone, leaving the sort of establishment sort of more business side of the GOP without any primary funder. And then Dick Uline, who gave yes to Darren Bailey, but really filtered a lot of his money through Dan Proft and this um, pack. So you, that left the Bailey campaign adding to his woes without the money to really do anything that he he wanted um, and, and having to depend on trying to cozy up to Uline, perhaps cozying up to Proft, Proft who makes some decisions that I think many political minds would agree are at the, the very least controversial. And so I, I don't know quite where politics goes from here. I think this adds to trouble for the GOP um, in, in terms of money. And that is something that you hear from sort of more of the, the grassroots and more conservative side, they're frustrated that there's all this talk about money and that the head of the GOP, John Tracy, talks about fundraising when uh, it may be bewildering to us all, but money certainly does matter. And I think you can look in part uh, at this recent election as evidence of it. Yeah, Charlie, I'll let you weigh in on that as well. Yeah, I, I think the long-range problem for the Republicans is probably greater than for the Democrats because, as Amanda said, J.B. Pritzker spread his money around a lot of places, giving $10,000 here, $20,000 there to Democratic county organizations, and that's going to enable them at the grassroots level to develop the kind of infrastructure that you really need to help you get out the vote, to help you manage your day-to-day -day messaging with folks. So I think it's it's going to be a bigger problem for the Republicans because there's nobody there to do that now. Oh, certainly. M much bigger problem for the Republicans. I do think, again, that it's also just sort of this, this question of, of funding that, that can't be ignored when increasingly you're seeing the most successful candidates. We, we, there, there have certainly been wealthy candidates who've not had electoral success plenty in the past, but um, just what it sort of means for elections and democracy to have this infiltration, to have primary funding by a couple of wealthy donors, to what that means going forward and what it has meant thus far. As a practical matter, it's what we're going to be faced with as a result of the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court that in essence opened the doors to all kinds of dark money flooding elections. And so that's going to be the 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 way things go in, in, on, into the future. And I think, again, it, it goes back to the messaging. The Republican message did not resonate well, particularly in the suburban areas, particularly with suburban women. One of the, I think one of the 
the main factors was when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down in the Roe v. Wade decisions allowing personal choice for women. And I think a lot of women reacted to that and decided we better vote for Democrats because if we want to keep control of our bodies, we can't trust the Republicans. Now, whether that's accurate or not, I don't know, but I think the the numbers reflect in the suburbs that that was a, a motivating factor for a lot of women. Well, that's politics. Now let's talk about governing. And Amanda, this year, when it comes to legislation that went on the books, uh, we didn't see a lot of high-profile legislation, but we did see some tweaking to what's known as the Safety Act. Certainly that got a lot of attention, especially during the campaign. Uh, but other than that, I mean, what else was out there? Anything? Well, so Sean, I think part of why we didn't see a whole ton of activity was because legislators scooted out of Springfield during their main session as soon as possible. And that's because this was, uh, 2022 was another reason it was sort of a spectacular election cycle is because the timeline was all off and very different. You had a summer primary. It was strange. (laughs) Um, And so that changed things, including for the General Assembly, which did have a a rush of activity at the end as usual, but that rush of activity didn't happen at the end of May this time around. Um, and so the the real hallmark legislation, as you noted, Sean, is the Safety Act. And this is a component that actually, of course, has been law actually for some time now, but is getting a lot of traction because come 2023, its main tenants when it comes to eliminating cash bail in Illinois will take place. And that was a huge part of the election, largely a huge part of messaging in a lot of campaigns, although it's particularly for Darren Bailey, though obviously it did not work out for him and sort of resonate, which is one of the reasons that you had a lot of pushback from advocates of the elimination of cash bail saying, wait, we don't, we don't need to change anything. Voters are on board with what we're doing. And the 2022 election results are evidence of that. But Still, and um, even as as we talk, we're sort of awaiting the fate of the Safety Act because you have about half of the state's attorneys in Illinois claiming that the law is unconstitutional and was passed in an unconstitutional fashion and are seeking for it to be struck down. So uh, you did see the legislature during their veto session where there were no vetoes to act on this really consuming all of the energy and getting cleaned up some um not to say that everybody is still on board with it that is i it's certainly not the case but nonetheless fixed to the point that at least some of the state's attorneys say that they're no longer as fearful about it as they would have been because of just some either Um, errors or misunderstandings in the original legislation. So we're going to be certainly following this very closely come January 1. As was mentioned, we are recording this show before a Kankakee County judge makes a decision regarding those arguments against the Safety Act. But your thought is this may continue as a legal fight going forward into the new year, no matter what happens. Yeah, I I think the commitment of, of both sides is such that whatever the judge in Kankakee County decides, it, he's expected to to do it shortly. Uh, the losing party is going to appeal his decision on up, and I I guess this is an issue of such momentous import 
that ultimately the, the Supreme Court will have the final say. Charlie, also big piece of legislation, an agreement that was reached in the fall, uh, that involved the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund. And uh, even though this is kind of a dry for many people, they don't think about it that much, this is pretty monumental as well. Yeah, it, it, it really was because there had been a disagreement. Well, during the, the height of the pandemic, we borrowed an awful lot of money from the uh, feds because of the unemployment, the Illinois unemployment fund was broke. And so we had to borrow money from the federal government. And coming into the fall session, we still owed roughly 1.4 billion from the pandemic. This particular agreement that was worked out takes care of, of, of that uh, debt. It basically has a combination of money that was left over, not left over, but state funds because the state budget did much better than predictions. And then also a, a plan for a $450 million loan, interest-free loan that will be paid over time by a, a additional tax on businesses. And you might say, well, gosh, that's a tax on business. That doesn't seem fair. Well, had this agreement not gone through, business would be on the hook for like $900 million. And this is going to cost them uh, maybe $450 million over 10 years. And one of the things that I thought that was most significant about this, even more important in my mind than the dollars involved, was the way this agreement came to be. It was a kind of a return to the old way of doing business where you had what's called an agreed bill process, where the major interests involved, business, chamber of commerce, retail merchants, manufacturers, and labor, AFL-CIO and other unions, sat down and worked out an agreement among themselves that both sides could accept. Then they presented it to the politicians for the the General Assembly and the governor to basically ratify what these interests had already agreed to. And that's the way it always used to be done on issues like workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, but we kind of fell away from that. And as I say, I thought it was a very significant development that maybe we're returning this notion of people who disagree can find some common ground to move the ball forward. Amanda, Charlie mentioned the budget, and really, when it comes to stories, I think that maybe people would not have believed just a couple of years back. Uh, now we look at the state's budget, and you can talk a lot of different reasons for this, but the bottom line is the state's fiscal picture is a lot better than it was, you know, when, say, J.B. Pritzker took office. How times change, right? Um, and strangely, in in part that the pandemic was awful, hurtful for a lot of people, for a lot of businesses, but it did help the state um, in, in when it comes to a financial perspective, both because of federal money that boosted a lot of projects and needs, and also because you had people buying a lot more stuff. Um, and so there is a different equation than we had been in, like you said, Sean, just such a different financial picture. Um, 
And I do think that that's something that, that that's positive. I mean, credit upgrades, not having to have serious negotiations about huge cuts to programs that folks on all sides agree are important. Does that mean that Illinois is out of the woods fiscally? Uh, no. Um, and something that we'll be watching is you sort of change from looking back on the year that was to looking ahead to the year that will be is what is that fiscal picture going to look like going forward? Should, for example, a recession hit as you have not just state government, but a lot of entities that look to state government. So you're looking at, for example, um, public transit authorities, seeing that that federal money expire, um, as well as municipalities having to deal with those losses. So we are in a relatively good place now as a state, but does that mean that things are hunky-dory going forward? There, there could still be some tough decisions ahead in the not-so-distant future. Will it be this year? We don't know. But going forward as well, um, you do still have a record pension debt that Illinois is doing its part to, to pay down in accordance with the law, but it is still the nation's largest funded, largest unfunded pension liability. So um, it's it's a mixed bag there. Yeah, Charlie, I'll let you weigh in on the budget as well. You follow the budget very closely. Um, like Amanda said, not out of the woods, but things do look a lot better than just not too long ago. Yeah, as a matter of fact, things are looking a lot better than just a number of months ago. The budget that was enacted for the current fiscal year, which will end next June 30th, uh, initially, and this is before we adjourned back in, uh, as was mentioned earlier, much sooner than normal, uh, was anticipating that we would have a general fund revenue of roughly $46.4 billion. The revised estimate, and this came out about a month ago by the Commission on Government forecasting and accountability, which is the legislative like financial wizard advisory group, uh, increased the estimate to $51.3 billion. So that's a, a, a roughly $4.9 billion difference. And the the commission is not known for being, what would you say, sensationalist, but they they talked about it, how amazing this has been that we've done so much better than what we expected when we put the budget together. Now, they did sound a cautionary note. They said that the actors that have to weigh into whether or not we're going to be able to continue at this pace include things like what happens with COVID-19? Do we get variants that are gonna make greater stress on our healthcare system? Uh, they, they cite an unstable geopolitical environment with the Russia war in Ukraine and world economies in general are struggling. What's gonna be the impact of inflation as the federal rate hikes go in? Is it gonna hurt business activity, lead to job losses here? How severe will the recession be? And how will these, when and how will these factors impact state revenue? But for now, things are looking pretty good. And one of the things we were able to do because of the additional revenues that we got that we weren't anticipating in the current fiscal year was we were able to make additional payments 
into the pension funds, as well as put like a billion dollars aside into the rainy day fund. And interestingly enough, because of the additional money that we put into the pension funds above and beyond what was required by the statute, the actual contribution that will be required in the coming fiscal year, which starts July 1st, fiscal 2024, is going to be less than what we put in this year. So yeah, we still have a huge unfunded liability, but the unfunded liability is calculated based on the premise that everybody who's entitled to anything will take it all at once. And that's not likely to happen. And we're still on track to reach 90% funding uh, by 2045, which was the goal when this law was enacted back in 1995. Well, I would be remiss without talking about probably the biggest court action that we saw this year, and that had to do with the indictment of the former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. As we sat down to record our year-in-review show in 2021, we knew that uh, Madigan was out of office, but we weren't sure what was going to happen from that point, although there were a lot of warning signs that we could see prosecutors uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office go after him, and sure enough, we saw an indictment come down. Amanda, you've been following this story where do things stand when it comes to the former speaker as we head into 2022? You know, Sean, it's incredible to me that we're ending a show talking about Madigan versus starting having mention of the former Illinois House Speaker scattered all throughout this program. I mean, he was the dominant figure in Illinois politics. And a year later, largely absent. And and in fact, even in court hearings, pretty much absent. Um, When he was indicted in March and since then, uh, this is still uh, in cases, a Zoom court. And even when you call in, no word from Madigan, completely silent. So we we have not heard much. We've heard nothing from the the former House Speaker. Um, And frankly, the expectation is that it, it will stay that way for a while. We're going to have some inter- intermittent court hearings and perhaps some information coming out from those. But uh, he was indicted in March. There was there a superseding indictment following. Um, so it's going to be some time because there's just so much material here. Uh, and some of his sort of comrades are earlier in that court system case. We're looking at, for example, Mike McLean and the others who indicted along with him for this scheme related to Commonwealth Edison and bribery of Madigan, which by the way, they all deny as of course does the House Speaker. But it is uh, again, pretty incredible to me that as we've had all of this talk about policy, what did and didn't happen in the year 2022, that Madigan was absent from it completely. And Amanda, just about 30 seconds or so left here, but you would be the best person to answer this question. Uh, We've talked on this show and other shows quite a bit when Madigan left about how would Democrats be able to wrangle all the members to get them to vote for things? How would they be able to do redistricting and election? At the end of the day, even though Madigan certainly, you can't deny the fact that he was successful, uh, Democrats seem to have pulled things together without him. Yeah, I mean, for Democrats worried that the sky would fall 
it didn't. They, they, they did redistricting. They did it in uh, with a plum in terms of gaining, again, to the majorities and drawing the Supreme Court districts so that the Democrats would add to their control of the state's high court. So uh, it did not. I will say that you, you when you talk to people, it is in part because of the structures that they believe Madigan put in place. Some of the bad parts they are now free from when you look at control, for example, of the Democratic Party of Illinois. So his his thumbprint is still all over the place, but um, and it is a very different dynamic in Springfield. But yeah, um, the Democratic Party is still going on thriving without him. By the way, though, I will say I did a story on um, unions in particular and some other Democratic allies continuing to donate to Madigan campaign funds, despite his indictment and his no longer holding any power outside of his ward. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. And that will wrap up 2022 for State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and Amanda Vinicky with Chicago Tonight. You can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. And a reminder to join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford, and have a happy new year. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.